I read a statistic that I was fascinated with. It said that more people bowl in a week than attend every NFL football game in an entire year. I don't know why that fascinates me so much, but it makes me realize that there's a whole part of America I know nothing about. (laughs) Because I don't bowl, and I do watch football. Um, Yeah, so with all these people bowling, it's not a huge surprise that probably every night somewhere in the... In the country, people are bowling 300 games. But what I, and by the way, if you don't know, a 300 game is 12 consecutive strikes for the entire game. So um, what I read, though, was is that the real kind of holy grail is a 900, three consecutive 300 scored games or, or 36 consecutive strikes. And up until recently, uh, that was extremely rare. I mean, you know, like 20 cases ever in the United States. Until recently, and technology changed it and made it far easier to do something like that. Um, but there was a guy named Bill Fong. This is a picture of him. He appeared on a magazine cover in Dallas, and it talked about a game that he was bowling. He, he's not a professional bowler. He's an amateur bowler who would love to be a professional, but never quite got over the, the hump. Well, he was bowling in Plano, Texas, down near Dallas, and... Uh, he bowled one 300 game, he bowled a second 300 game, and then kind of the people in the bowling alley started to notice that he bowled 33 consecutive strikes. He was up for the 34th ball, and people were starting to stop doing what they're doing and starting to pay attention to him, as you can imagine, and 34 is a strike, and, and 35 is a strike, but something happened at about that 34th strike is that he started sweating, he always started a little dizzy, a little disoriented. Uh, but you know, it's the nerves of the moment, right? So then he goes to uh, roll that 36th ball, and it's going down the, the, the lane. Everything was the same. The, the steps are the same. The release the same. The follow-through the same. The ball's hooking just right. In fact, the, the crowd starts cheering for him because that ball looks so perfect. They started cheering for it, even hit the pins. And it all went perfect except for the 10th pin. It wobbled and didn't go down. And he got an 899, <laughs> uh, which is evidently very rare, too. Um, <laughs> so, so, so there he is. I mean, here he'd hoped to kind of use this as a chance to get sponsors. And he thought maybe this would be a chance to, to go professional with this whole thing. And he's incredibly disappointed. He goes home. Uh, that night, and the sickness, the, the, the symptoms didn't go away. He's still dizzy, he's still nauseous, he's still kind of sweating. It turns out that on that 34th f- frame, he started having a stroke, and uh, he was bowling those last frames while having the stroke, and, and the doctors told him, without question, the only thing that saved his life was that tin pin that didn't go down. They said it was uh, obvious to them that had that tin pin gone down, had he got the 900 game, he would have died right there, lane 28, Plano Super Bowl, right after bowling the 900, because his heart, his blood pressure, it just couldn't have handled it. And so what seemed like an incredibly disappointing moment, getting an 899, turned out to be the thing that saved his life. Looking back on our lives, I think we can see that things that we think of disappointments or bad things that happened to us turned out for good. Looking back, it's easier to see that. But it's almost impossible 
to see that in the moment. When you're in the moment experiencing that hardship, that difficulty, that disappointment, that bad thing, almost impossible to see that really it might be very well for your best. Well, as we um, are in the middle of a series in James, and so if you have your Bible, why don't you open up your Bible to James chapter 1. We just started a couple weeks ago, and Dave walked us through last week one of the most kind of counterintuitive passages in all the scriptures. Uh, This morning we'll cover verses 5 through 8, but we'll start and just read the whole thing. James chapter 1, 1 through 8. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. See, that's what's so counterintuitive that Dave walked us through last week. When you're facing trials, when you're facing hardships, when you're facing tests, when you're facing difficulties, the last thing you can do in that moment is, is have a response of joy, much less pure joy. But James tells us why that should be our response in verse 3. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now in verse 5, we're told that we are to ask God for wisdom. But what exactly does that mean? Well, as a way of answering that question, let me ask you what this means. This means. What what does R-U-N mean? Well, some of you are thinking that it means something that's faster than a walk, but slower than a sprint. But some of you are thinking that it's means to operate a computer program, because you run a program. But some of you are thinking of a, 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 a point or a score in baseball. But some of you are thinking that it is, uh, well, I used to hear my mom talk about a run in her pantyhose. Now, that's old school. I don't think anybody says that anymore. But I remember my mom saying that. Or some of you are into to plants and you're thinking this means how ivy runs up a wall. So what does that mean? Which of those options does that word mean? You can't tell, can you, apart from context. Because the context that that word finds itself in gives that word the meaning that we understand. Well... In the same way, the Bible always has context. And any verse that you look at in the Bible, you don't really know what it means until you understand the context that it was written in. And so when James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, what he's talking about is wisdom in the context of trials. It's not as if somehow God totally changed the subject at that moment. See, so he's saying, ask God for wisdom when you're facing all these trials and difficulties in life. 
speaking about trials, Paul Tripp put it this way. He said, God will take you where you never intended to go to produce in you something you could not do on your own. God takes you into trial that you never intended to go so that he could produce in you spiritual maturity that you could never do on your own. Now, when God sends a trial or a difficulty or hardship to you or to someone you care about, what's your first instinct? What's the natural response of your heart? I think for most of us, the natural response is to ask God to remove it, to get rid of it, to take me out of it. When you get the bad diagnosis from the doctor, your first response is, God, heal me and take that away. When, when you get bad news about layoffs coming at work, you say, God, I don't want that. Make sure that doesn't apply to me. When you have a difficulty in a relationship, the, the first response is, God, fix that problem. So, so you can see that we're putting ourselves in an awkward position because God says in James that, that, that he is sending us trials for our good. But while God's sending us trials for our good, we're praying he'd take them away. God says, I'm going to bless you with these trials to do something in your life. And you're saying, God, get rid of them. Now, now what's that show? Well, it shows at least a couple things. One, that we have very little idea about how God works in our life. And two, when we pray that trials will be removed, it shows that we want something different from ourselves than what God wants for us. God wants spiritual maturity. We want comfort. God wants transformed Christ-likeness, transformed character. We want ease, hassle-free life. And so James comes along and says, look, when you're facing trials of various kinds, the first instinct is not right to pray to ask God to to, to fix it or to remove it. He says, instead, pray and ask God for wisdom so that you'll know how to respond. See, because trials don't automatically produce Christian maturity. Well, sometimes when people are in trials, including ourselves, what it produces is anger or frustration or, or doubt or wondering where God's gone. It, it produces all kinds of things, but it doesn't necessarily produce maturity, even though that's what God wants it to do. It's not automatic. No, uh, trials produce Christian maturity when we have the divine wisdom to see what God is doing in our life. Now, it makes sense that trials would cause us to cry out to God for wisdom and help, because trials drive us, kind of by definition, they drive us beyond what we can handle on our own. They drive us beyond our own insight, our own personal wisdom. Trials drive you beyond what you can handle. So they lead you to see yourself in a more humble way, and they lead you to cry out for help. Trials release us from the bondage of self-reliance. Let, let, let me show you that. 
Apostle Paul's life, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he's relating to us his personal experiences and what he's learned. So he says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles, that's the trials, right, that we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. So you see, trials push them beyond their ability to cope, beyond his ability to handle it. That's what trials do in everybody's life. His life, our life, your life, everybody's life. So that we despaired of life itself. Verse 9. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. So whatever trial that they were facing had come to the point that they thought that they were going to die. They were despairing. You might say they were depressed about it. But here we go. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. See, Paul says, this trial was sent by God to purge me of my self-reliance and to teach me the foolishness of looking to myself. And instead, it replaced self-reliance with God-reliance. And it taught my heart that God is the only one worthy of my trust. I wouldn't have learned that if I hadn't gone through that trial where I thought I was going to die. See, that's a lesson we all need to learn because the truth is that all of us rely on ourselves far, far too much. We are far too impressed with ourselves. We think we are far wiser and far stronger and far more righteous than we actually are. I don't know if you realize this or not, but your weakness does not keep you from Jesus. What keeps you from Jesus is your strength. The gospel is for weak people. The gospel is for the unable. The gospel is for the fool. God welcomes in the gospel those who realize that they can't, but they run to a redeemer who can. That's the good news of Jesus. So now let's look at verse 5 again and then kind of break it down, phrase by phrase. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. So when James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he's not saying, look, there's a couple different groups of people out there. You might be in the group that doesn't really lack wisdom. You've kind of got life figured out, and that's good, wonderful. You don't really have many needs. You, you see the world accurately. You know yourself well. And you know how to handle each and every uh, situation you find yourself in. But there's this other group out here that's not quite as sharp as you. And they lack wisdom. And if you're in that group, then ask God. That is not at all what James is saying. And James is saying that every single one of us lacks wisdom. But not all of us are smart enough to see it. Every single one of us is in way over our heads, but not all of us feel how underwater we are. You see, some of us, catch this, I know it's crazy, some of us, maybe you, maybe me at this moment, are deceived into thinking that we've got things kind of figured out. Revelation 3.17 talks about people like that. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. 
but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You see, one of the things that sin does in our life is it causes us to think that we don't have any needs. Can you imagine getting to a point where you say, yeah, I don't really need anything. And yet, that is the condition that much of us are in. We might not verbalize that, but that's how we live. So sin distorts our picture of even our own self. So that we don't see ourselves, as this verse says, wretched, poor, pitiful, blind, naked. But we see ourselves as, yeah, we kind of got it figured out. Now, if you have eyes to see yourself as you really are, in all of your neediness, and all of your brokenness, let me ask you, where do you see the need for wisdom in your life? Where do you see the need for wisdom in your life? Is it about a relationship that you're in? If you're a parent, does that expose your need for God's wisdom? What about if you're married? Or what about if you're dealing with in-laws? Does does dealing with in-laws expose your need for God's wisdom about how to handle certain situations? If you're trying to think through your career, is that what exposes your need? Where in your life, right now this morning, do you need God's wisdom? When we read, if any of you lacks wisdom, we should be thinking, yeah, that's me. Don't think of someone else. Don't think of your kid who's making foolish decisions. Don't think of your spouse. Don't think of your boss at work. Think, that's me, Lord. I lack wisdom. Because all of us do. All of us can be foolish. I mean, think about it. For the pursuit of pleasure, we spend ourselves into debt. Or for the pursuit of pleasure, we eat ourselves into bad health. Or for the pursuit of some sort of physical satisfaction, we throw away what could be a good marriage. Or or, or because we have to be right, we try to win an argument versus having a, a good, loving relationship with another person just so that we can prove we're right. See, if any of you lacks wisdom... Yeah, that's me, Lord. I lack wisdom. Because as long as sin remains in me, I am a fool. And I am my greatest enemy. And I need God to rescue me from me. So if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all. What's your hope in the midst of your neediness? What's your hope in the midst of your brokenness? What's your hope in the midst of your foolishness? God, who generously gives wisdom to all who ask. If you lack wisdom, don't go get a PhD. Don't go get the local uh, newspaper or grab a magazine off the rack in the grocery store aisle or head to the bookstore to get some book there. Don't first turn to Google. No, if you lack wisdom, First, go to God. Because Proverbs 2.6 says, The Lord gives wisdom. And Colossians 2.3 says about Jesus, In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So what's this wisdom that God has and you and I need so much? 
Well, it's not knowledge, not just knowledge. It's not, wisdom isn't measured by advanced degrees. We all know people who do well on tests or who are great with facts. But they don't live life well. We don't call, or we call them book smart. But we don't call them wise. Because wisdom requires discernment. Wisdom requires judgment. Wisdom allows me to see how things really work in the world and gives me practical ways to live out my life. Wisdom is seeing life and seeing myself and seeing relationships and seeing the world from God's perspective. And Christians don't think of wisdom as being primarily some sort of outline or some set of answers or even some set of theological answers. As Christians, we believe that wisdom is a person and his name is Jesus. And when you are brought into relationship with Jesus, then you're brought into relationship with the ultimate source of wisdom, with the very definition of wisdom. Because everything knowledgeable and everything wise and everything true is found in Jesus. So ultimately, wisdom is not known by research or even by experience. Wisdom is known by relationship with Jesus. One of the things that's happened as I've gotten a little older is I wake up in the middle of the night where I didn't used to do that. I don't know if any of you have experienced that, but, but for some weird reason, I am reflective at that time. I, I think about my life, and I, I, I sit in the quietness of my house, and nobody moving, and it's all dark, and I, no noise at all. I just, for whatever reason, my mind drifts to just what's going on in my life, kind of a big picture. And I, I've never sat there in one of those quiet times in the middle of the night and thought, wow, I'm impressive. As I look at my life, I am very, very impressive. I have navigated this pretty doggone well. I have made one good decision after the next, pretty much. And uh, it's good to be me. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think that. In the quietness of the house, in the quietness of my own heart, what I am overwhelmed with is how blessed I am. What I am overwhelmed with is how God has been good to me beyond measure. What I'm overwhelmed with is how God has been gracious and kind to me, how God has given me wisdom in my own foolishness. I mean, how could I have ever have made it? Just in, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as a friend, how could I have ever possibly made it without God's wisdom and God's help and God's mercy and God's grace and this verse says that God loves to give his wisdom generously. God loves to give wisdom. He loves to rescue foolish people. He loves to protect you by his grace. He loves to guide you in his truth. He does it generously, lavishly, liberally. He loves and delights to give you his wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. Without finding fault. And God doesn't mock you for your need. He doesn't throw your weakness in your face. He doesn't keep track of 
how many times you've come back and asked me for wisdom as if there's some sort of limit that you're about to reach. He doesn't say, how many times now have you gotten yourself in over your head? When will you finally learn? No, God says, if you have a need, come and ask. See, your hope, my hope, your hope, my hope, all of our hope, is not that someday we're going to hit a certain point and we're going to have this figured out. Our hope is not that we're going to get to a point where we don't need God's grace and we don't need God's wisdom because finally we've learned enough and now we understand what's really important and now we're doing things the right way. That can never be our hope. Our hope as Christians is in one thing, and that is in the character of a God who has promised to generously give wisdom to all who ask. Our hope is in God who loves to meet our needs, who delights to keep meeting our needs, who never throws our neediness in our face, but says, keep on coming to me because I love you. Verse 6, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So James is warning us about something. As we come to God and ask for wisdom, he's warning us about doubt. And if you're like me and you read that, you start getting overwhelmed and depressed because who among us doesn't struggle with doubt? But I don't think these verses are saying what you think they're saying. These verses are not warning us about intellectual doubt. It's not saying, look, When you're praying, if you ever doubt, God walks out and says, I'm out of here. Thank goodness. Because doubt is always nearby all of us. But if it's not saying that, if it's not saying God's out of here when there's any doubt creeping into our life, if it's not saying that, what is it saying? Two two clues. This same word for doubt is used in James chapter 2, which we'll get to eventually. And it's talking about being torn between accommodating the rich and accommodating the poor. And and this word talking about being torn in two. The the second clue is that this word double-minded at the end of verse 8 is a word that doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament and doesn't even appear in in other literature at the time that we know of. It looks like James coined a new word, made up a word to get across his point. And literally it means to be double-souled, to have two minds, two souls, two hearts. As if you're kind of a spiritual schizophrenic who are trying to walk in two different directions at the same time. So what James is warning us of, he's warning us of being the kind of person who has an allegiance to God, but is also enticed by the allurements of the world. He's warning us about being the kind of person who doesn't really want to know God's wisdom about our dating life or about any area of our life because we don't really want to follow it. He's warning us about the kind of, of being the kind of person who kind of wants to know what God has to say on this but isn't committed to following it. 
And we'll have to see if God's wisdom lines up with what we really want to do with our money or anything else in our life. See, what he's doing is he's saying, be careful, because if you're trying to pursue worldly wisdom and godly wisdom at the same time, if you are double-souled, double-hearted, you'll receive nothing from God. But of course, when you hear that, you go, well, isn't that me too? I mean, don't I have these conflicting set of desires in my own heart? When I was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, we used a little booklet that I'm sure is still around, I'd guess at least, called The Four Spiritual Laws. And we used to talk to people about Christ with this. And the first law was this. God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. But we've screwed that up. And now we've changed it. And we have it this way. We love us and we have a wonderful plan for our lives. And that's the conflict, is between God's plan and our plan. God's way and our way. See, Paul Tripp again reminds us that James is not saying that God is committed. James is not saying that God is committed to give us his wisdom to make our kingdom work. He's not committed to giving us his wisdom to make our own self focused purposes in this life work. God's wisdom is kingdom wisdom and it is for those who are loyal to him. Genesis 3.6. This is back in the Garden of Eden when Satan is trying to get Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. It says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also, catch this, also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took and ate. You see, Eve is just like you and me. She wanted wisdom apart from God. And that's what we want. We want wisdom to make our own purposes work, to make our own desires become a reality, to make our own kingdom flourish. That's part of what sin does in all of our lives. It's the battle within every Christian. A tug between God's will and our will. God's way and our way. God's kingdom and our kingdom. And you know that tug because you know that you're like me. And that there are things that we know are the right thing to do. And we do the opposite. See, none of us can read this passage and not walk away thinking... I'm double-minded. I'm double-hearted. I'm double-souled. I wish I could say that I was always consumed with doing God's will, but I'm not. I wish I could say that I always was living for God's glory, but it's not true. I wish I could say that I was always about prioritizing God's kingdom, but that's laughable. Of course that's not true of me, and it's not true of you. None of us can say that. But see, God doesn't give us his grace to make our kingdom work. No, God gives us his grace and invites us into his kingdom. Now it finishes by saying, the the verses we read finish by saying that a person who doubts is like a wave being tossed about in the sea by the winds. 
See, that's, that's the person who is tossed about because one day they want God's wisdom and the other day they want the world's wisdom. They're saying they're double-minded and unstable. Not having an anchor of faith, they are driven by every wind of desire, every wind of temptation, every wind of emotion. Not having been anchored in the gospel, they are subject to everything that comes along that would toss them back and forth like a wave in the sea. And it leads to an unstable life, an unstable heart. Is it possible that our in, the instability we see in our life is due to a disloyalty in our heart? I think that's why the psalmist tells us in Psalm 86 to, to pray this way. Teach me your way, Lord. I wonder if this could be your prayer tomorrow morning. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. See, that's what I want, God. I want an undivided, an undivided heart, an undivided soul, an undivided mind that singularly pursues Jesus. I don't have that now. But I want you to do that in my life. Now here's the good news. That Jesus wasn't double-minded. Jesus wasn't double-souled. Jesus had the singular focus of pleasing his Father. Yes, he was tempted in every way like you and me. But he never sinned. And because Jesus' heart was never divided, he can pay the penalty for the double-souled and divided hearts that you and I have. See, this cry for wisdom and the warning that James gives drives us right back to Jesus. And it drives us right back to the cross. And it drives us right back to saying, Lord, have mercy upon me, for I'm the double-minded, I'm the double-souled, I'm the double-hearted. Jesus went to lay down his life for people like you and me. There is hope if you will see your need. Now if Revelation 3.17 is how you look at your life, I have no need, then this won't appeal to you. Remember the gospel is for the weak. The gospel is for the needy. The gospel is for the broken. The gospel is for the foolish. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. Take and eat. And he took some wine and he poured it into a cup and said, this is my blood. Pour it out for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus paid for my double-mindedness. For yours as well. In just a moment, I'm going to invite you to come take communion with us. If you haven't done it here before, you go to the aisles, either on the outside by the walls or the interior aisles, walk up to us and at the stool and, and take a piece of the bread and dip it into the wine that's in our hand or dip it into the juice that's on the stool in front of us. You don't need to say anything, although we will say a word of encouragement to you. A couple reminders. In between services, there are always people over here, my left, your right, eager to pray with you. Also, 
and during communion, we remember those in our church and our community who have physical and financial needs. Any money going into these baskets with the white cloths only goes to that purpose of hel- helping hurting people. As you come this morning, come saying, I'm weak, I'm needy, I'm foolish, I need Jesus. Let's pray. Father, have mercy upon us, Lord. Have mercy upon us by opening our eyes and letting us see the truth about who we are and the truth about Jesus. And may what we see in our own heart and what we see in Christ cause us to run to Him and cling to the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.